Good day to you, and welcome to Fascinating. I am your host, Rick, from Planet Vulcan. My continuing mission on planet Earth, to search for signs of intelligence and to encourage its spread. A few listeners have told me that I am far too negative in my characterizations of Earthlings. Why am I always harping on problems on planet Earth that need to be fixed? Don't I have anything good to say about Earthling culture? So I'm going to take a paragraph or two at this time to say some good things, and there are a lot of them. Please understand that my motive for stating the not-so-good things is just to grease the squeaky wheel. First, you might have heard a rumor, and it is true that Vulcans are inordinately fond of the chocolate that is produced on Earth. We love the taste, but that's not all. It has, for us, psychoactive effects that enhance our sensory experiences. We are strongly motivated to protect Earth on this account alone. We have not found it on any other planet, and the synthetic stuff made on our planet does not compare with what nature has created on yours. We are also fond of the way that Earthlings express themselves emotionally through the arts. We Vulcans are not without emotions, even though that is the stereotype, but our planet has not produced the music, the dance, and the storytelling that Earthlings excel at. Some Earthling music, musicians are very popular on planet Vulcan. George Gershwin, Pink Floyd, and Al Green come to mind. We enjoy a good performance of intricate piano music, too. For example, Andre Previn, Oscar Peterson, Lang Lang, and the inimitable Yeno Yando. We seldom listen to music, of course, without eating chocolate. If you're wondering why I don't include a mention of Bob Dylan, it's because he is one of us. Think about it. Have you ever seen a picture of him where the tips of his ears are visible? Among Earthling scientists, we are especially fond of Richard Feynman. He was bright enough to have been one of us. Earthling technology and technological innovation are also becoming quite impressive, especially in the way that so much of it arrives in the way it does, that is, through entrepreneurship rather than through directed collective action. We also admire those among you in many academic fields who are working to integrate evolutionary principles, including the recognition that your species has been sculpted by nature, even from the neck up. But back to the mission. We really do need to talk more about the squeaky wheels. I hope it does not hurt your feelings when I point out the tremendous room for improvement in the thinking of the typical earthling. This is one thing that Vulcans generally do better than Earthlings. We have noted that an alarming number of Earthlings are strongly attracted to simple, easy-to-understand wrong answers to complex questions, especially if the answers can be made to serve as calls to action in some sort of glorious crusade. It's alarming how easily so many of you can be coaxed into resorting to the torches and the pitchforks. One meme in particular that has us puzzled is the feeling of unreasoning resentment that we observe on your planet towards people who receive high incomes. Contributing editor Slancha Nazdrovia has conducted an investigation of this meme and submits the following. 
Let's begin with some quotes that reveal typical attitudes toward the rich. Book of Matthew, chapter 19. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Book of 1 Timothy, Timothy, chapter 6. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Henry David Thoreau. The more money, the less virtue. Pierre Joseph Proudhon. The possessions of the rich are stolen property. Victor Hugo. The rich's paradise was created by the poor's hell. There seems to be a common presumption in our culture that the only way rich people get rich is by making other people poor. Is that presumption necessarily valid? Should we resent the rich? The answer is it depends. We need to know how they got rich. Did they lie, cheat, or steal to get it? Or did they get it fair and square by fulfilling their obligations under legitimate contractual arrangements? It is easy to find examples in history of people who became rich by being unfair and unsquare. Think of the royals and the nobles in a feudal system living off the labor of serfs, or the owners of, of a plantation living off the labor of slaves, who just took, not because they had the right, but because they had the power. For those who get it fair and square, though, we can make a strong case that far from resenting them, we should be happy for them and celebrate their success with them, because, as we shall see, their success is our success too. To begin with, we need to be clear about what we mean by rich. Rich is synonymous with wealthy, and wealthy means owning lots of unencumbered assets. In popular usage, unfortunately, people will often refer to individuals with high incomes as rich. But if you consume all your income, you do not accumulate assets, so you are not rich. It's only if you save part of your income that you build net worth and become rich. Unless, of course, you received assets by gift or inheritance, or by winning the lottery. The difference between income and wealth is the same as the difference between a river and a lake. That is, a river is a flow and a lake is a stock, best understood as an accumulation of inflows. If you wish to think rationally and not confuse the issues, you must keep the distinction between wealth and income in mind. Details matter. In order to understand why we should be happy about high earners in our midst, we merely need to get past the eknorongi, that is, ignorance in reverse, knowing something that isn't so, demonstrated in the above quotes by Proudhon and Hugo, known as zero-sum thinking, that is, the idea that someone's gain is inevitably someone else's loss. Once we understand that it's not only possible but commonplace in much of today's world for someone to gain without inflicting losses on anyone, called a positive-sum game, and in fact in ways that spread the gains around, we open up an entirely new vista and our previous judgments based on zero-sum thinking evaporate. Income is simply the mirror image of production. Income and production are even treated as identical in economic modeling. It follows, then, that if someone receives a high income 
In a market economy, it is generally because of the value their efforts have contributed. We see also that an accumulation of saved income, which is the definition of wealth, since by definition it does not go towards the rich person's consumption, goes instead towards investments in real assets. The real assets, such as factories, buildings, and equipment, contribute to the well-being of us all. These assets are commonly referred to as man-made inputs to the production process, also known as the means of production or real capital, and they make our labor more productive and thus more remunerative than it would be without these inputs. And after all, there is only so much that anyone, no matter their income or wealth, can consume. You can only live in one house and sleep in one bed at a time. You can only ride in one car, boat, bicycle, or airplane at a time. You can only eat until you are full. You can only have one or maybe a few sexual partners at a time, etc. We are led then to the conclusion that out of self-interest, if not out of benevolence, the amount that is saved after even extravagant consumption becomes inputs to productive processes, inputs that would not have been made but for the fact of income having been earned and saved. So, if you wish to argue that the possessions of the rich are stolen property and still lay claim to rationality, the burden of proof is on you to demonstrate that it was actually stolen. It is not enough just to point to statistical inequalities as anything more than suggestive a starting point for investigation and by no means a conclusion. What about the idea we hear so frequently that wealth, wealthy people are morally obligated to give back? A moment's pause should give you time to realize that if their income and wealth have derived from contractual arrangements, then they have already given back. That is, they have provided value for value in their contractual arrangements. Over and above this, they owe nothing because everyone's, everyone else's contractual claims have already been satisfied. It is interesting to note, of course, that many wealthy people do engage in philanthropy, which we must conclude is from the goodness of their hearts. We should also say a few words about the income statistics that are currently a subject of wide discussion. And for the moment, let's set aside the fact that these statistics are often mistakenly re referred to as evidence of wealth disparities, even though, as we have seen, income and wealth are distinct concepts. The problem with the way income statistics are often used is that they present information in the form of a snapshot, when it is really a moving picture that we need to see if we wish to achieve deep understanding. You will often hear, for example, something like the statement that the top quintile, that is the top fifth of earners during a particular year, received, for example, 50% of total income. That can sound alarming until you think about it, and many cynical operators use a statistic like this to stoke alarm and then claim that there is a spontaneous groundswell of public protest. But snapshots like this do not actually give us a useful picture. A motion picture would reveal that the individual earners within the top quintile are not the same people year after year. 
The alarmists are trying to tell us that they are the same people year after year who are receiving the high incomes, but it's just not so. A motion picture would also reveal that each individual is likely to have an earnings profile over their lifetime. Where the income is relative low, relatively low in the early years of the working life, relatively high in the later years, and again relatively low in old age. These demographic considerations play a major role in determining who is in each quintile for each snapshot. And let's examine the idea of distribution of national income as it is commonly, commonly used by the cynical operators. We must realize first at all, of all that the nation is an abstraction and abstractions do not have income. National income is in truth merely the way we refer to an aggregation of individual incomes. We must also clarify the word distribution. Our cynical operators try to make it sound as if there is someone who is actually doing the distributing even though in truth, distribution is merely a statistic that describes the array of outcomes. They would have us believe that the national economy is a pie that is baked in Washington, D.C., and then parceled out and parceled out most unfairly. Income is, of course, not literally distributed. As a rule, it flows to people under contractual arrangements. Our cynical operators have put it all together into a simple, easy-to-understand, wrong narrative which says that some group of people who run things are distributing the income which belongs to the nation unequally, which is to say unfairly. They propose to step in and take control and to distribute the nation's income equally. Just trust them. If the diagnosis is wrong, though, the prescription is not going to work. The cynical operators, to the extent that they put their programs into action, are going to do far more harm than good as they create perverse incentives and hobble producers. And we really should comment on the way the cynical operators are attempting to hijack the word justice, which has always meant fair play to most people and to redefine justice as egalitarian outcomes. Do we really believe that both teams ought to get six points whenever one team scores a touchdown? Let's start ignoring the cynical operators and pay attention to what matters, which is fair play. With fair play, everything else falls into place, everyone has an opportunity, and no one has any legitimate gripes. And for the love of Mike, stop falling for the zero-sum fallacy. Many thanks to Slancha for this essay. Some of you listeners are quite possibly thinking that the way Slancha ended her essay, she might be revealing callousness towards those among you who are victims of circumstance and who are in need through no fault of their own. Don't such people really have a legitimate gripe? I'm quite sure Slancha was not proposing that anyone should be abandoned. She's merely arguing that you step onto a slippery slope if you regard need as a claim. There's still room for benevolence, and most humans are benevolent most of the time. If you're curious about how all this looks to a Vulcan, I will tell you. We believe earthlings ought to be very cautious taking actions that hamper your ability to create economic value, 
even though that might not be an intended consequence. The system most of planet Earth has now, which generally allocates resources by means of a pricing system, is effective because it leaves individuals free to use that which belongs to them to create this value. And it rewards them for doing so. This dynamical process has resulted in the vibrant and healthy superorganism referred to as the economic system. We believe Earthlings would do well to develop a deeper appreciation for how this superorganism functions. Many of you seem to believe that it would be possible for the right collection of individuals, who in truth are simply cells within the superorganism, to exist in a place apart, to strap a saddle onto the superorganism, and with the right combination of reins and spurs, control it down to the smallest detail. With a little thought, you should be able to see that this belief is delusional and that the idea of a few cells in any superorganism controlling the entire superorganism is absurd. Your ancient Greeks would have called it hubris. As the eminent earthling economist Friedrich Hayek wrote, our curious task as economists is to explain to people how little they understand about that which they propose to control. But what about the plight of the needy? In nature, organisms can be roughly classified as predators, parasites, and symbiotes. Don't worry about the obvious gray areas just now. The point here is that no one realistically expects that human society will ever exist without its niches for predators and parasites. Even though symbiosis has so many obvious benefits to the symbiotes. Many of you favor the, using the institution of government to create a safety net for the needy. If this is what you favor, I urge you to be cautious. Remember that government does not literally provide the safety net. It can only redirect resources. It must first rob Peter if it is to pay Paul. A safety net is good to have for those who are needy, but you need to recognize that what you intend to be used as a safety net can also be used as a hammock. Just be careful that you do not allow the Pauls to grow so numerous that the Peters are overwhelmed, if you care about sustainability. I invite you to have a listen to the next installment of Fascinating. Please provide feedback to these podcasts if you are so inclined. You may contact me by sending an email to Senior Contributing Editor Prego Denada, pregodenada at gmail.com. Live long and prosper.